This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. show. It's the Wednesday edition of the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering questions about the Bible, questions about church life, questions about stuff going on in your life. Whatever it is, we need you only to call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. If you are driving in your car on this beautiful afternoon, the safest way to do so to call us is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to the studio producer. Everything else can be hands-free and all will be well. Hey, before we get started with questions, uh, let me remind you that tonight, as because it's Wednesday, we have our Old Testament Bible study coming And uh, what's significant about this is we start tonight the life of Joseph. More than 25% of Genesis is dedicated to Joseph. He is an enormously important figure, um, one of the most holy men, one of the most Christ-like men uh, that has ever walked the face of the earth, uh, persecuted, uh, we sing a song, persecuted but not cast down or something like that. And and uh, and, and Joseph uh, thrived. He always knew God was with him. So we begin uh, closing out the book of Genesis. Now it's going to take us quite a little bit of time to do it. But uh, uh, the life of Joseph, it's really important. Um, I realize most people can't make it here to Calvary Chapel, but it will be live streamed at calvarysa.com. And then because... Tomorrow is Thursday. That means, ladies, Paula will be on the show on the date day edition. Um, if you have any questions, need any encouragement, uh, Paula will be here live in the studio, and we will uh, uh, be able to, um, I hope, brighten up your day. Actually, she brightens it up. I darken it back, then she <laughs> brightens it up again. But uh, that is tomorrow on the program. Okay, let's get to some questions that have been sent in. And uh, then we'll wait for your phone calls. Uh, First one comes from Carlos from the northeast side. Hi, Pastor Ron. Um, Hope everything is well uh, with you and Paula. I just had a quick Jesus question. In today's work environment, there is a lot of favoritism between employees, managers, administration, etc. This can create a hostile environment in the workplace. Even with job promotion, sometimes people in power abuse their rights. I guess my question is, how as Christians are we supposed to take these injustices? I just ask myself, what would Jesus do? Looking forward to hearing your response uh, on the radio. Thank you and God bless. Carlos, it's really good to hear from you again. I pray that all is well with you. Um, You know, let me suggest to you a Bible study that I did last Friday night uh, in Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, right at the beginning, it's about the slaves and their earthly masters. And, of course, the uh, obvious application for us is um, uh, employers and employees. And I think that's uh, a, a, a very practical Bible study that deals with these things. Let me say this, that your boss, Carlos, whenever you go to work, your boss is Jesus. 
and we're to do everything that we can to honor him. We need to be the best employees ever, regardless of how much we're getting paid, regardless of whether or not we think we're underappreciated, or even if other people are getting credit for the work that you do. None of that matters. Jesus is watching everything that you do and everything that we're to do is to honor him. So give them a full eight hours a day of work, if that's how long you're working, uh, for whatever you agreed to work for. Uh, Keep your focus on the work. Don't be distracted. Don't be one of those who uh, gets lost in their phone or on the computer uh, when the boss isn't looking. But be an employee that that recognizes that Jesus is there with you. Um, Carlos, the Christian employee, ought to be there on time every day. Ought to be there with the right attitude, ready to work. You know, not ready to go to the coffee station and, and talk to people. The minute you are getting paid, then you need to be a really, really good worker. Now, if you are being taken advantage of or you're in one of these hostile environments, remember that Jesus sent the Christian into the middle of that darkness because darkness is where they need the light the most. And and I, I recognize that all of these things that you say are real. But Jesus is the one who gives promotions. Jesus is the one who will go before you. No grumbling, no complaining like the unbelievers do, not getting involved in gossip or or the, the dirty stories that, that travel around workplaces, but instead just keeping your focus on the work. And in the process, whenever you get the opportunity, you're sharing Jesus. I realize that a lot of places say, you know, you can't do that. I promise you, if you're a light for Christ in your workplace, you're going to have plenty of opportunities to do that. So remember, do all things at work as unto the Lord. And if you will do that, then I promise you, God will be sure that you get promoted according to his will. Maybe not yours and maybe not your employers, but according to his will. And the rewards that you're storing up in heaven are huge. Now, before I sign off on this question, Carlos, let me say this. I realize that the answer I just gave you is the last thing our flesh wants to hear. We have rights. This isn't fair. Um, The only thing that was really and truly unfair in this world was when Jesus hung on the cross for your sins and mine. And this is one of those things that we've got to understand. We've got to take this deep into our hearts. And if we'll do that, then we'll begin to be in that place where Jesus um, can pour out blessings upon us. won't be easy. There'll be times when you hate it, but when you are faithful, doing things that you really hate, but you're being faithful for Jesus, imagine how pleased he is. It's easy to, to work in a place where everything is great. But remember, darkness needs light, and that's your job. Carlos, thank you for asking the question. It's good to hear that you are going okay. Uh, Derek asks a question. I like the way he puts it. Pastor Ron, what was going on with the sons of Siva? Uh, Derek, this is in the book of Acts. And the sons of Siva, the seven sons of Siva, uh, were were trying to figure out a way to make money. Now, remember, Jews, especially religious leaders, made a lot of money, made a really good living exercising demons, or at least that's what they pretended to do. It's like Catholic priests now. Um, no real power to do so, but at the same time, they, uh, they, they, they've got the people fooled. So the seven sons of Siva, um, they thought they could cast out demons, and, and uh, they watched Paul do it, and they'd seen the reaction of the people, and so they went out and started their own little business, trying to cast out demons. Well, in this particular case, the demons just looked at them and laughed. In the name of the Jesus, Paul proclaims. And the demons interrupted him. Well, well we, we know who Paul is. And we know who Jesus is. But who are you? And then the demons, using the human host, the demons jumped on the seven sons of Siva and beat him so badly that they ran away bleeding and naked, completely humiliated. Obviously, the moral of the story there is that, that you can't name somebody else's Jesus. There's no power in somebody else's Jesus. The only power that we have is in our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. 
So, Derek, that was what was going on in the book of Acts. There was all kinds of things in that first century that uh, people like Simon the Sorcerer, for example, wanted to counterfeit the power so he could make some money on it. And Peter told him, well, well, uh, may your money perish in hell with you is really what he was saying. So uh, that's what was going on with the seven sons of Siva. That's a story that I always laugh. And, you know, in our confused Christian world in 2021, you see a lot of false teachers who are shouting and screaming and sweating and spitting and they're saying all these things. But there's absolutely no power at all in their lives or in their ministry. So hope that helps. Thank you very, very much. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Randy wants to know is speaking in tongues like in a typical Pentecostal church biblical? where everyone speaks at once with no interpretation. Randy, it is not biblical. That is, I call that charismania. And I want to, my my standard default here is we are a charismatic church. We do believe in the gifts of the Spirit today. And we, we operate in the gifts of the Spirit. But we do it according to the rules given to us in the Word of God. Um, Randy, in, in any church where people are all speaking in tongues at once and there are no interpretations, immediately you can recognize that there's no Holy Spirit there. there. There's a spirit, but it's the wrong spirit. And there's no benefit. It's an exercise, a religious exercise that makes people feel good, but, but it really has no value at all in terms of knowing the will of God or doing the will of God or being in a church where people are getting helped. There needs to be order in the church. And that's why in 1 Corinthians 12 and in 1 Corinthians 14, we are given the guidelines by which the spirit, uh, the gifts of the Spirit are to be, uh, to, to, to be used. And um, unfortunately, people that are all yabba-dabba-doing at the same time, Randy, um, that is not only unbiblical, but it's unhealthy. It's not something good that happens in the body. And in a meeting, in a group of people in the church, tongues without an interpretation are, are of no value at all and they need to be stopped. The gift of tongues primarily is a an individual gift. It is a vertical gift. It is to edify, um, uh, using the gift to edify our walk, strengthen our walk with Jesus. But uh, Randy, in no way should people be speaking out in tongues all at the same time in church. And when you see the gifts of the Spirit being abused in that way, um, the indication clearly is that you're in an unbiblical, unbalanced, unhealthy church, and you need to find a church that really believes in the Word of God. So, Randy, thank you very much for the question. Norma says, should I attend a wedding of a friend? And in parentheses, she writes, the friend is a believer uh, who is marrying an unbeliever. Norma, my answer would always be no. Uh, I, I get this question about about attending um, same-sex weddings and things like that, family members, and, well, should I go to keep peace in the family so they know I love them, those kind of things. There's nothing loving in, in, in your question uh, about um, encouraging somebody, a believer, to marry an unbeliever. So uh, my answer would be no, absolutely not. Uh, um, there's room uh, in this issue for disagreement. But I can tell you, as a pastor, Norma, the one source of pain that is by far greater than any other source of pain when it relates to marriages, more than kids, more than jobs, more than finances, is uh, Christians who are married to unbelievers. And your friend um, who is going to marry this unbeliever is doing something harmful and hurtful. And what you want to do is you want to let her know that you will be there for her uh, or him. You don't you don't uh, indicate what the, the gender is of your friend. But let him know that, you know what, I can't do this because what you're doing opposes what the Bible tells us to do. And the Bible says that for our own protection. 
And then you can say this, but I will be there for you when things fall apart. I'll be praying for you. I love you, but I I can't support you in this decision because I know the amount of pain that's going to result. You know, Norma, many, many years ago, we had a Christian woman in the church. I mean, we were just at the beginning of our ministry here, really. Um, And uh, um, she'd fallen in love with somebody. Um, He wasn't a believer. And um, she asked me, and I said, no. One, I won't do the wedding. Second, uh, I, I can't tell you any more passionately than, than, than this, don't do it. There's going to be pain. And I didn't see her for a little over a month, and I knew that that meant that she went ahead and married him. Um, and then one day she comes back, and she asks if she can stay after church, and she talked to Paula and to me. And I just looked at her, and I said, you married him, didn't you? And she said, yes, and you were so right. You were so right. And I said, now, she said, I'm going to take your advice and I'm going to divorce him. And I said, no, no, no. You made one mistake. Don't make a, a worse mistake. Now you're stuck with the decision you made and the consequence of the decision. And she was crushed, but she understood. And um, she went home and told her husband that the same pastor who told her not to marry him is now telling her that she can't divorce him. And uh, he said, I want to go talk to him. And, and when he met me, he just said, you know, I, I want the man who would say uh, to her not to divorce me after he told her not to marry me. And I explained to him why. Guy ended up getting saved. Now, their marriage didn't last very long, but at least he made a profession of faith, whether it was genuine or not, only he and God knows. But, but um, uh, there's just so much pain. So, Norma, short answer, never uh, do anything that would encourage a believer, a friend, um, um, to to uh, marry somebody who isn't a believer or to do anything in terms of the marriage that would violate what the Word of God says. Um, 340-9585. We'd love your live calls and questions. John wants to know, uh, what does a pastor like you do if you aren't feeling well and can't show up? Uh, John, that's an interesting question. You know, I think one of the the fears that we all have is getting sick in front of people. Um, you know, a few years ago, now not a little more than four years ago, when I was going through uh, my heart, uh, a virus attacked my heart, and I had some really serious issues. Uh, there were times when I couldn't stand up. Uh, I, I actually had a wedding. And uh, I, it was a, a young girl who grew up in our church, and I was so anxious to do the wedding. And um, I actually got to the front of the church, and I started to go down. And so I had, a, I had asked everybody to stop for a moment. Uh, Pastor Ken kind of came to the rescue, um, but but I had to leave. Um, I don't think I've I've missed church other than a few times during that episode. Uh, with my heart, uh, I don't think I have missed church. There's been lots of times when I haven't felt well. Um, but, you know, you play hurt. That's just the thing. People depend on you. You want to be dependable. And so it's just almost never uh, um, a situation where I wouldn't go. I'd have to be really, really sick. And normally there would be enough time to have Pastor Kinner prepared. Uh, but um, you know, they, they just you got to kind of push through these things, and that's that, I guess that's the only way I can answer your question. Um, I tell Pastor Ken uh, always to have a, a study ready in case something happens. But um, truth is, you got to play hurt. It's just that simple. I, I just don't feel the freedom not to be here. Uh, and, I have never missed a communion Sunday with my church in since we opened from the very beginning now in in almost twenty six years and I think it's um it's our responsibility to be there people depend on us to be there and I think uh that is um I, the best way I can answer the question I hope that helps 
Let's go to line one and talk with Bill from Live Oak. Bill, thank you for calling. You're on the air. Yes, hi, uh, uh, Pastor. I, uh, I First of all, I want to 100% agree with you, if I may. I think your uh, reasoning about different religions getting married is absolutely practical, good, good common sense, especially if there's children, but even without that. I think that's very reasonable. But actually, my question addresses what it says, I guess, in the Second Corinthians six fourteen through 17, mm-hmm. and I, that's about the unequal yoked business. Yes. And I've had an occasion to research that and talk to some real scholars, and I have found that it's not, re- and I'd like your comments and your thoughts, if you don't mind. Uh, I have found that when you read it, it's referring to Satan worshipers or demon worshipers, not fellow Christians that might be of a d- different denomination. Would you mind sharing your thoughts about that? Yeah, I can, uh, Bill. Thank you very, very much. Two things. One, um, I don't, uh, I, you said the, the advice I gave was good and it was practical, but that's not why I give it. I give it because that's what the word says. Now, when you look at first or, or the, the Corinthian passage, 2 Corinthians 6, um, and, and I've taught on this a lot, um, Bill, uh, when you look at it, it says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now, I think there is a broader application than just marriage. But certainly marriage, the most intimate of all human relationships uh, between a husband and a wife, uh, that's certainly in view there. So, no, um, I don't know the scholars that you're reading. There is almost universal uh, understanding and agreement that this is talking about um, um, intimate relationships. I actually would extend this to something like business relationships. Uh, if if uh, I was to go into business with somebody as a believer who wanted to honor Jesus Christ and uh, my, my potential business partner was somebody that didn't know Jesus and didn't have the same understanding of money or obligation to Christ or, or purpose and direction, I, I actually have applied uh, that passage to, to situations like that as well. But the idea here is uh, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers and and it uh, it doesn't have anything to do with satan worshipers unbelievers uh while, while they wouldn't agree that they're worshiping satan they're certainly being controlled by satan but that's as far as you can stretch that application bill and uh, uh it it refers specifically in context to um relationships um of, of an intimate nature now that doesn't mean you can't have friends but those friendships, Jesus himself said, are going to be split by the man and the woman who really stands for Jesus Christ. So I think that is uh, a pretty good exegesis of the passage. Thank you, Bill. I appreciate it very, very much. Here, uh, let, me, let me read the passage just to be sure. It says, do not be yoked together. Now, the idea that would be a very vivid picture in the ancient world because their oxen were yoked or their horses were yoked uh, to do the job, to pull um, to do the job that they were assigned to do. And um, the way he explains it after that, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common, or what fellowship can light have with darkness. So that's the the specific context, Bill. Thank you very, very much. I think I have time for one more before the break. We'd love your live calls and questions. This is an anonymous A pastor told me that I could not be resurrected if I was cremated and had to be buried instead. I can't afford a burial. Am I risking hell? Um, No, Anonymous. And a pastor that would tell you that is not only uninformed, but he's cruel. He's cruel. You know, we have such crazy superstitions about uh, about dying. You know, in in Jesus' day, they put him in tombs. Uh, We put him in the ground. Uh, if you're in the in the navy, they they bury you at sea, or sailors like to be buried at sea. Um, um, the body goes. The Bible says, "From dust to dust, from dust you came, dust you will return." And typically, that takes about thirty nine years. Cremation does exactly the same thing. In about thirty nine minutes. So. Uh, it, it's 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 a cruel thing to say. Uh, Paula and I have agreed that we are going to be cremated. Uh, I have very specific reason for that with Paula, and and from my perspective, I just don't want any money 
more than than absolutely has to be spent on this old tent. When I am with Jesus and in my new physical glorified body, uh, I don't care what happens to this old body. It can lay on the ground. They can kick it. They can... I, I, I used to tease Paul, just bury me in the backyard. Of course, that's not legal to do. But no, it is perfectly fine to be cremated, save the money, and just understand that what happened to these old bodies doesn't matter at all. And burial, just because it's the custom in this 21st century world, uh, has nothing to do with the heart of God. We've got 30 minutes left in the program. We'd love your live calls and questions. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to stand up for life. I'll be back in two minutes. Got a question for Pastor Ron and the word to stand on for life? You can send it to him via email at pastorronkslr at gmail.com. That's pastorronkslr at gmail.com. back to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh boy two minutes really goes fast doesn't it 340-9585 here is a question from oliver pastor ron in matthew chapter 8 there are two demon possessed men but only one in mark chapter 5 why the difference. Uh, Oliver, there's not really a difference. Now, obviously, if, if you've got two people looking at a situation um, um, from a different perspective, uh, there are going to be different details. Uh, if you take a news story, you can read an Associated Press story uh, and, and, and read something, and then you can look at a local story and the local reporter, because his emphasis is on something different, will add or, or leave out some details. And that's all that was happening. The only difference or the only inconsistency would be if in Matthew 8, it said there were, there were for sure two demons, but but Mark or Mark said there was only one demon possessed man, but that wasn't true. Legion is the the man in view here, and in in his particular case, um, there was somebody with him. They lived in the tombs, the catacombs. Um, they terrorized the community, but Legion was the the object of the story. So Matthew uh, just mentions that there were two demon possessed men. Mark's gospel which is Peter's account. Remember that Mark got his information from Peter. And in, in, uh, in Mark's account, um, he focuses on the one demon uh, that Jesus spoke with. So that's all. It's sort of the same thing when you see uh, the story of the angels in the tomb of Jesus. Um, one says there were two men. Another one says a man, um, referring to the angel, uh, in the other gospel account. Um, remember that they don't claim um, there was only one man, or or uh, uh, that that would be a discrepancy, and we we'd have problems with that. But they're simply focusing on different details. Uh, people sometimes will use things like this to point out. Well, see, the Bible can't even get it straight. There were two demons in one gospel and only one in the other. Uh, when in fact the reality is we're just getting different perspectives, which incidentally validates more righteously the Word of God. I mean, if they were all word for word the same, then people would start thinking, ah, wait a minute, maybe they were copied. And the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels did share information. But those differences are sort of like the fingerprint of the Holy Spirit on it. They tell them the same story. And you just get additional details. So no differences at all. Uh, no discrepancies or inconsistencies at all, Oliver. Anonymous question. I have friends and family who've been told recently they have cancer. How can I comfort them when I don't know if it is God's will to heal them or not? 
You know, Anonymous, let me take this opportunity to, to, to maybe go a little bit farther in this question than you intended. Um, I don't think we should ever tell somebody that it's God's will that they're going to be healed. We don't know that. Um, and I think there's so much bad teaching. You know, God never wants anybody to be sick, but, but that's not true. It's not that God wants us to be sick. It's just that God knows that we're going to be sick. And the most difficult thing when we're praying for somebody, and, and we've recently had some people here at Calvary, people that I love so much, some of them, young, and you, you just wouldn't expect any news like this. Um, you know, in praying for them, I want to pray that they would be healed, but I also have to realize that that is my very limited perspective from 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 Earth, and and uh, obviously because I don't want to hurt, I don't want them to hurt. Um, I can pray that God will heal them, but but this is a time when we have to be able to say, "Thy will, not my will, be done" in our prayers. So I think the best way to deal with somebody who is facing a serious diagnosis like this is simply to sit down and encourage them to get closer to Jesus than they've ever been before. Let them know that when you talk to them that you'll be there with them and for them, that you'll be praying for them. But we can't say it's God's will that they're going to get healed. We don't know. Uh, The reality is that most people don't experience healing. Um... All we can do is let them know that Jesus is there. He understands the pain you're in. He understands the fear. And he'll be with you every step of the way. And often I remind people that there's another who will be with them every step of the way, an enemy who wants to do them harm. So that's why they really need to stay close to Jesus. So there's no easy answer in this anonymous, I want everybody to be healed because I don't want my heart to get broken. Even Paul said, speaking of Epaphras who nearly died, he said, but God spared us sorrow upon the sorrow. And, and I often will pray that, oh Lord, spare us. Merciful God, spare us sorrow upon sorrow. And we pray for people. And honestly, anonymous, we've had people that looked like they were going to die. Um, the, the, the prognoses were, were, were horrible. Um, the aggressive cancer appeared uh, to be consuming them, and and um, they've been healed in ways that doctors simply cannot explain. They don't even try to explain. Others who got a diagnosis, and it didn't look like it was all that severe, maybe early stage, but I've seen those cancers get aggressive very quickly and take people's lives. So we just don't know. I think sometimes the best way to answer people when they're afraid is say, look, we don't know what's going to happen, but here's what we know. Jesus is here. He loves you. And if you'll stay close to him, he'll protect you as best he can. Take care of yourself and ask God to spare you. You know, we have examples in Scripture uh, from people who were healed miraculously, of course, and, and all the way to... Uh, Hezekiah, who was given an extra 15 years of life after he was told uh, by Isaiah that that his illness was terminal. And God relented and, and gave him 15 extra years, and he had a son that was born. So it is the purview of God to make these decisions, these choices. The way you comfort them is not with healing. The way you comfort them is by bringing Jesus closer to them. Obviously, you serve them, you you let them know they can depend on you, but the truth is that that um, Jesus is the comforter, not you. Jesus is the comforter, and the Holy Spirit, if you'll give him a chance, he'll take you right to the feet of Jesus. Thank you for the question. Robert wants to know, why do you say God won't accept worship from any tradition other than Christian? Um, Robert, because the whole world is separated from God by sin. That means we have no access. Think of it as a passcode. You know, we've got a bunch of codes. You can't get on computers and and you can't do things without your password. You put a little code in there. You go to the bank, you got to put a code in. Uh, if if I went to your bank and tried to, to withdraw money from your account, 
Uh, if I didn't have the code, I couldn't do it. Well, perfection, righteousness is the code. And Jesus, without that code, is not accessible to us. And that's why God cannot accept worship from any tradition other than Christian. Only born-again Christians are going to be in heaven. Only born-again Christians, those who have asked forgiveness of sins, are, are capable of worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And any other religious person who claims any other way to heaven, it's like the parable of the wedding banquet when, when everybody was dressed in their wedding clothes and the master of the banquet noticed that there was one man who didn't have his wedding clothes on, so he was removed from the wedding. And we got a lot of people trying to get to heaven on their own terms. Muslims and Buddhists and, and Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and uh, Catholics that aren't born again. Um, um, the, the, the wedding clothes comes only when you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So that's why. Here, Robert, is the biggest question. Obviously, you're not a believer. Um, you can know for sure that you will be received in heaven by asking Jesus Christ to forgive you and then giving his or giving him control of your life repenting of sins Jesus I'm a sinner make that confession and then what he'll do is is let you know that you can be forgiven just ask and then you say Lord I've messed up so badly I'm going to keep messing up unless you take over I give you control of my life and suddenly the fine white linen of the saints, symbolic in Scripture of the righteousness of Christ given to us freely. That can be yours, and you don't have to worry about any other tradition. There's not a Jew or a Muslim or a Buddhist or anybody else that has an answer for sin, and if sin disqualifies us from heaven, then you got to ask people what they're going to do about their sin. Only Jesus, only Jesus can deal with their sin. So that's the answer, Robert. I pray Jesus for you. Here's a question from Alex from our mobile app. Hey, Pastor Ron, do you have any suggestions for commentary on the book of Genesis? Um, yeah, there, there's a lot of them. Uh, Alex, um, a friend of mine, um, Bob Davis, uh, wrote one. His is a um, um, a simple one, more more practical. Um, there's a guy named Green, G R E E N E. Uh, his commentary on Genesis is really really good, uh, but there's no shortage of commentaries on Genesis. Um, uh, Morris, uh, Henry Morris, has a really great commentary. Uh, a lot of it from a scientific uh, perspective. Has a really great commentary on the book of Genesis. Um, but but there's so many. Um, uh, another friend of mine, David Guzik, he has a commentary on every book in the Bible um, online for free, EnduringWord.com. So um, those are good ones. Um, um, other names escape me now, but, but uh, you can Google Genesis commentaries and there is a ton of them that will be uh, accessible for you. Hope you enjoy it. Uh, by the way, Alex, I've got all of my Genesis notes um, online at calvaryessay.com. Uh, I've got a complete commentary on the book. Um, I don't sell it. It's available for free uh, on our website. And of course, I've got all of our studies uh, in Genesis. I think this is our third time going through Genesis uh, here in our twenty five plus years and um, uh, I've got all of our Bible studies um, over those those years uh, available so you can listen to them on some of them you can watch them uh, or you can just go to the notes section and uh, my written commentary the notes that I actually teach from uh, are on there as well and it costs you nothing thank you here is a question from Philip Pastor, and why do you think so many Christians these days are attracted to universalism? 
Uh, universalism for the audience is just the idea that everybody is somehow going to make it to heaven. Uh, obviously, if that's the case, Jesus didn't have to die, um, but he died. Uh, he asked the Father three times if there was any way out, uh, and, and three times the Father told him no. Uh, Jesus was um, brave enough to pray, nevertheless, thy will, not my will be done. Uh, and so Jesus died because he had to. There's no other way. Now, the reason I think Christians are attracted to universalism, uh, mostly they're emotional. They're certainly not intellectual reasons. There's there's no honest intellectualism that, that, that looks at the Word of God and can come to the conclusion that everybody's going to end up in heaven. But, but the, the reason they're emotional, um, especially as an immature believer, you're so excited that you're saved. You're so excited that you're going to go to heaven that you want everybody to be in heaven. And one of the questions that every new believer has to deal with is, well, God, if you love everybody, how could you send people to hell? And, and, and usually you don't get the answers to those questions until you mature in your faith. But the reality is God doesn't send anybody to hell. We make that choice of our own free will, and God simply honors that choice. And universalism is a heresy, Philip. It's a heresy. It is not orthodox Christian doctrine. It's a damnable heresy. And you can't believe in heaven without believing in hell. You can't believe in Jesus without believing in the devil because Jesus taught on both of those things endlessly. And universalism gives us the feel-good, the goosebumps of saying, well, well, you know, I just believe that my God is a God of love and, and he certainly wouldn't send anybody to hell. And for a minute you feel better, but then our entire faith deconstructs before our eyes. Now, I think there's one other, even more emotional reason, Philip. I think a lot of times when Christians or, or people come to Christ and they, they make a profession of faith, they instantly have to deal with the eternal fate of loved ones, people they've loved and lost, who weren't Christians. Um, I had that struggle. I, 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 my mom died uh, two years before I became a believer. And I really wrestled with that. And I begged God for my mom to be in heaven. And I don't know for sure that she is or that she isn't. And that's really, really a tragedy. But I, I had to come to the conclusion, if I was going to be honest intellectually, I had to come to the conclusion that if my mom wasn't born again, if she didn't give her heart to Jesus Christ, and she is really suffering in torment. Now, that doesn't make me happy. It certainly breaks my heart. But as you grow in the grace and knowledge of God and who he is, your faith grows and you learn that you can trust God with those questions. That every decision God makes is just. Every decision God's make, God makes is perfect. And God, if my mother did not give her heart to Jesus before she died, um, I know that God gave her many, many chances. And there's a situation where we've simply got to understand that if she's not there, it's not God's fault. So I understand this. I, I we've had people get saved uh, who were who got after after a spouse died, uh, especially in their older years, and and we think, well, well, if I give my heart to Jesus, I'll never see my wife again, or I'll never see my husband again. And I always look at Luke sixteen. And say, well, here's what they would say to you. In fact, I use this at at every funeral that I do that that is a funeral of an unbeliever or if we're not sure about the choice they made. And I say, well, here's what your departed spouse would say to you. And I take it right out of the story. Go and tell my brothers so, so this thing doesn't happen to them. It's, it's a very powerful tool for evangelism. But, Philip, the one thing that we cannot do is let our emotions dictate our doctrine. Paul tells Timothy to watch his life and doctrine closely. Doctrine matters because what we believe is how we live our lives. 
And when you see people going to universalism because it feels better, because it gives them peace, well, it's not a real peace. It's a false hope. And it's a really, really damnable heresy. So, Philip, I hope that makes sense to you. I hope you're not attracted to universalism. Jeremy has a question. Will you talk about the publican in Luke 18, please? What is the main point? Um, Let me read the passage. It's a few verses, and then we'll talk about it. Uh, The Bible says, To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, that's the word publican, translated in the King James as a publican. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even men like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And here's the punchline. I tell you, this is Jesus. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, the the, the point of the story here, Jeremy, is that the man or woman who thinks that they, because they're a good person or because they do outwardly religious things, well, they're going to get to heaven. Um, but But I think the key in verse 11, it says the Pharisee stood and prayed about himself. Uh, and literally, in, in Greek, this is he prayed to himself. He wasn't talking to God. He was just talking to himself. And, of course, that's a disaster. There's nobody listening. And all he could do was look at, at uh, people that he looked down on and say, Oh, I think I'm not, I thank God I'm not like them. And then he tried to justify himself before God. And the point of this parable is that there is no one who can justify themselves before God. No one. And all we have to do is ask God honestly. Ask God honestly to forgive us. Understand that we have no claim to heaven. That we don't deserve heaven. And appeal to the God of mercy. The God of our Bible is a God of mercy, a God of compassion. He is a God who longs to forgive. He is eager to forgive. But you see, the first guy in this parable didn't think he needed to be forgiven. He thought he was all that. The tax collector, the worst kind of sinner in a Jewish mind, he couldn't even bring himself to look up to heaven. He knew he was a sinner and asked for forgiveness. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I always think, Jeremy, about the um, two thieves on the cross with Jesus when I think about this parable. Um, Two thieves, both of them hurling insults at Jesus. Both of them listening to all seven statements Jesus made from the cross. Both of them hearing all of the things that the people were saying to them, the mocking, the insulting. And only one of them was moved by what they saw and heard. And finally, the one who was moved said, in response to the other thief, saying, um, if you're really Christ, save yourself. That's what he would do if he had the power. The other one said, have you no fear of God? This man doesn't deserve what's happening to him. You and I, we deserve it. And it was the man who knew he deserved it that Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. So, Jeremy, that's the main purpose, the main point of the parable. 340, I don't think we have time for any more phone calls. It's two minutes, okay. Just so it'll probably be the last question. This is from Lance. He says, can you explain what a Torah-observant Christian is about? Uh, th- this is a sad thing, Lance. Um you know, there are real Christians who have bought the lie that in order to be a good Christian, you first have to be a good Jew. Now, we know that's not true, but 
um, people get unnecessarily tangled in things that have nothing to do with their relationship with Jesus Christ. A Gentile becoming Jewish, well, there's no value in that. That doesn't do anything to make your relationship with Jesus closer or stronger. Um, a Torah-observant Jew, um, somebody trying to keep the law and justify themselves, um, Paul had harsh words, especially toward the Galatians, who who were caught up in these things. He said, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you? Who, who Who's bewitched you? And this is what the enemy tries to do. He tries to get us all tangled up in rules and regulations. Um, truth of the matter is, Jesus, at the last, sable, uh, last supper in the upper room, he lifted the cup of redemption. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant written in my blood. And so we're not Jews or Gentiles. There's no value in being Torah observant. There's no value in holding on to the law. The value for us is that we can let go of the law that condemned us and let that law lead us to our need for Jesus Christ. And when we realize how much we need him, well, then we can come to him and receive forgiveness of sins. So, Lance, I hope that helps. Hey, thanks for tuning in today, tonight, uh, Genesis chapter 37. Won't get through the whole chapter. We're going to do an introduction to the story of Joseph. Tomorrow, Paula will be beautiful and she will be live in person on the Word to Stand Up for Life. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock. See you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Oh, yeah.